Hi, I'm Dr. Melissa Hunt. I'm the Associate Director of Clinical Training in the Department of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. I also have a private practice where I specialize in working with folks with chronic GI disorders, and I'm on the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast. My biggest pet peeve about the way in which IBS gets managed has got to be restrictive diets. Um, we know that they don't really help people in the long term, and they really limit joy and socializing in life. So don't do it. Don't try to reduce your symptoms by avoiding foods. Let's just reduce the sensitivity that makes you sensitive to the foods to begin with. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dr. Neil Smoller. I'm a holistic pharmacist, and I'm owner of Woodstock Vitamins. If you want to get in touch with us, you can visit woodstockvitamins.com or check us out on Facebook or Instagram. We're there as Woodstock Vitamins. We're on Twitter doing our sarcastic thing using the username at NoBSVitamins. And if you want to email me directly, you can just email podcast at woodstockvitamins.com, and I'll be happy to talk to you and take any questions you may have. On the show today, Melissa Hunt. Dr. Hunt is back. I clicked so much with her recently that I asked her back shortly after her last appearance. So she was here and talked about her research around social media and depression. But today we're going to talk about the mind-gut connection. If you're hearing Dr. Hunt for the first time, she's a licensed clinical psychologist who serves as the Associate Director of Clinical Training in the Department of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. In addition to her clinical practice in cognitive behavioral therapy, she conducts research on the best approaches for stress management and into the causes and treatment of depression, anxiety disorders, and chronic health problems, especially GI disorders. As a clinical scientist, her emphasis is on translating basic psychological science into treatments that are effective, acceptable, and accessible to patient populations. Our guts are a mess, and Dr. Hunt helps people understand the connection between our brains and our gut health. Here she is. So, Melissa, let's talk about one of your specialties, which is around the brain-gut connection. Can you just give us an overview and what you found and how you use it in your clinic? You bet. So, a lot of people who have chronic GI disorders are absolutely convinced that there's something wrong with their GI system. That is, that there's something actually wrong with their gut or their intestines. And the thing is, oftentimes what's wrong is miscommunication that's happening between the gut and the brain, or that is between the enteric and central nervous systems. Now, if you think about it, we have a lot of words in common language that kind of capture this, right? People talk about having butterflies in their stomach, or people talk about um, feeling like they've swallowed a stone. Or going um, with their gut. Or going with their gut. That's right. right. There's lots of natural language that reflects the fact, that captures the fact, if you will, that things that happen in our brain, in our thoughts, things that we're experiencing and thinking and feeling actually get felt in our gut. Now, that's really interesting when you think about it. And we might wonder why that's true and how that plays out for people who are really experiencing a lot of GI problems. So the 
relationship is pretty clear for a lot of us. I know um, I, my wife's family is probably going to hate me for saying this, but the minute that those guys get stressed out, it's DEFCON 5 is what they call it, and they all have to run to the bathroom. Uh, for me, I'm a different case. I have the cardiovascular symptoms surrounding stress. So, yep. uh, And we do know that there is a uh, actual uh, physical connection between the two. So let's... There is... We there understand that this relationship exists, right? Mm -hmm. And so let's now talk about what is that physical connection between the two? So how is the brain and the gut related? First of all, you've pointed out something really interesting, which is that different people express stress or experience stress in their bodies in different ways. Mm -hmm. So as you pointed out, some people get, you know, rapid heart rate or shortness of breath. Mm -hmm. Some people get horrible, horrible headaches. Some people get muscle spasms in their lower backs or in their yeah. neck and shoulders. Some people bust out in hives, right? Mm -hmm. And some people, for some people, the, the, the main link is between the brain and the gut. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that people with functional GI conditions like irritable bowel syndrome often complain about is that they think that if their gastroenterologist says, look, there's really not much more I can do for you, I'd really like to suggest that you see a therapist. It's really easy for a person with IBS to be really insulted and angry about that because they feel like they're being told that their symptoms are all in their head. Right. It's all dismissive. In their it's head, right? right. It mm -hmm. feels dismissive. It feels like they're being told they're just crazy and neurotic and they're kind of making these symptoms up. Mm -hmm. What I like to tell people is, oh, I don't think it's all in your head by any means, you are right. absolutely experiencing very, very real GI symptoms. It could be really cramping pain and urgency. You could have terrible gas or constipation or constantly need to run to the bathroom like, you know, in 30 seconds or, or you're worried you're going to lose it in your pants. Right. What I tell people is those symptoms are real. They're not all in your head, but guess what? They're coming from your brain. Mm -hmm. And what specific pathways uh, does this exist? Like what's the, the pathophysiology of it? How, how does that relate? So there's a lot of interesting pathophysiology. One of the things we know about sympathetic nervous system arousal in general, which is the whole fight or flight system, is that it kind of shuts down digestion. Mm -hmm. The parasympathetic nervous system, which is my favorite, is responsible for rest and digestion. So the parasympathetic nervous system kind of allows digestion to proceed normally, whereas sympathetic arousal really kind of shuts things down. It can cause um, muscles throughout the GI tract to spasm. If it happens in your throat, you get a lump in your throat. If it happens in your stomach, you can get terrible nausea. Um, some people even vomit when they're super stressed out. You can also just get gastroesophageal reflux, like really terrible, terrible heartburn. If it happens in your small intestine, you can just start to feel crampy pain and terrible gas. And if it happens in your large intestine, you can start to feel really, really terrible urgency and like you have to poop in the next 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. If it happens even lower in your pelvic floor muscles and down around your anal sphincter, you can actually experience terrible constipation where it's very, very difficult to even relax things down there enough to, to let the poop out. So that's the sort of central nervous system. There's also some really interesting things that happen with the endocrine system. So for example, we all know about adrenaline, right? Adrenaline is something that our, that our adrenal glands squirt out when our brain perceives stress, when, you, when, when we perceive that, that something's happening that we really have to, to react to. 
We also produce a hormone called cortisol, which is also one of the main stress hormones. Now, these systems are pretty complicated. There's lots of different signaling systems. One of the signals for cortisol is something called corticotropin-releasing hormone, or mm-hmm. CRH. There are CRH receptors in the wall of the intestine. There you go. There's a nice connection. There you go. So just sit with that for a second, right? Well, I'm going to sit with it for a second, just because like, I'm still lost. You said anal sphincter and I'm a 40 year old, like teenager, and I'm still kind of (laughs) stuck on that. So I missed everything you said. And then I got the, 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 the receptor. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. You know, one of the things that happens when you work in this area is that your disgust sensitivity goes right out the window. We just talk about poop and diarrhea and constipation (laughs) and farts and everybody poops all the time. problem. In fact, one of the things, so you're describing all the symptoms surrounding IBS. And one of the things that my staff said when I mentioned we were going to have this conversation is, is why does everybody have diarrhea? Because like in a pharmacy, obviously we deal with lots of common problems. And one of the biggest problems is around GI disruption. Mm -hmm. And she's like, Mm -hmm. they they think that all I do all day is just talk about how people poop. So, and I'm (laughs) totally cool with that. I don't think that there's anything to be ashamed of. And I think that Mm -hmm. you shouldn't whisper about it when you talk to the people in, in a pharmacy, you should, you should blurt it from the rooftop if you can. (laughs) You know, I absolutely agree with that. In fact, one of the things we know is that shame and secrecy um, about these problems can actually really exacerbate the stress that people feel. Some people don't even talk about it with their spouses, their most intimate partners and loved ones. And, you know, when they're sort of rushing off to the bathroom, even with their their spouse, they might make excuses um, and sort of Mm -hmm. try to hide what's going on. And I don't recommend that. Not at all. All right. So we know that there is a physical connection between the brain and the gut, and you were uh, uh, highlighting the connection with stress. Mm-hmm. Serotonin plays a big role too, does it not? Serotonin absolutely plays a big role. So does norepinephrine, it turns out, um, mm-hmm. two of the major hormones that are also involved in depression and anxiety. Yep. There are serotonin receptors in the wall of the gut as well. There's no question mm-hmm that how we are experiencing our lives, how we're thinking about things, how we're responding to stress can have a direct biological effect on the functioning of the gut. Now, what ends up happening as people start to get sensitized is that people develop something called, all right, wait for it, visceral hypersensitivity. Okay. What the heck does that mean? So the viscera is all the sort of internal organs inside us, like our gut and our liver and our stomach and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Hypersensitivity, right? It means too much sensitivity. So what does that mean? What that means is that pain signaling from the gut is actually getting inappropriately amplified mm-hmm. in the brain. So the pain signaling is coming up through the thalamus from the enteric nervous system. And, and it's almost like the volume has gotten turned up too high. All right. So, of course, once that starts to happen, you're off to the races with a vicious cycle because Mm -hmm. you're worried about pain and discomfort, you're worried about urgency, you're worried about having to run to the bathroom, you're worried about cramping pain. And so, of course, you start paying more attention. You become a little bit hypervigilant as well. You start sort of scanning your gut for, you know, to notice if there's a twinge or, you know, something, or maybe you ate something yesterday that you shouldn't have eaten and you're really going to pay for it today. A lot of people think that. And of course, mm-hmm. as soon as you start scanning and paying attention, those signals start to get more salient. They get louder. And then when you notice things, uh-oh, now you get worried about it, which starts off this whole cycle of a stress reactivity, which actually makes the gut even more reactive, which seems to confirm that something's really wrong, which amplifies the pain, which increases your hypervigilance, 
and you see where this is going, there's kind of no way out. Yeah, it's so common with so much stuff that we deal with. I mean, if somebody's Mm -hmm. having a hypertensive crisis and you say, oh, Jesus, you're having a hypertensive crisis, then it just gets worse because then their heart starts racing to start worrying. And on a micro scale, like when you're having negative thoughts, like the idea of anxiety and depression, are you depressed because you're constantly in uh, in an anxious state or is it anxiety because of the depression? Because it becomes this negative vortex that our body just are just keeps reamplifying these signals. That's exactly right. So the the stuff that we've been talking about, and we've mentioned it a couple times now, is irritable bowel syndrome, which is a specific type of GI disorder that has this stress component to it. How does that differ from like stuff like Crohn's and 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 those kinds of things? So that's a great question. And hey, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> And there are some really important um, rule outs that people should make sure that they've, you know, that their doctor has done before they accept that they have a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. So one of the most important rule outs is celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disorder in which the immune system freaks out in response to gluten, which is a protein that's found mostly in grains like wheat and rye. And when the immune system detects gluten, it actually mounts a huge autoimmune response that actually ends up destroying some of the cilia in the small intestine. Um, Celiac disease can be quite damaging. Um, It can lead to anemia and all kinds of nutritional deficiencies and chronic pain and diarrhea. And the solution is just to stop eating gluten. And people with celiac disease really truly are sensitive, if you will, to gluten and, and or intolerant of it and, and need to not not eat it. Um, celiac disease is diagnosed with a with a fairly simple blood test that detects the antibodies to gluten. Note that you have to have been eating bread and so on for at least six weeks prior to the test. Don't try going gluten free and then go have the test. That it won't detect it. Um, right. So that's one of the rule outs. The other really important rule out, which you mentioned, are the inflammatory bowel diseases, and that includes Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Now, interestingly, the IBDs, as opposed to the IBSs, right, the IBDs, the inflammatory bowel diseases, are also actually autoimmune disorders Mm -hmm. in which the body mounts an inflammatory response for reasons that are not well understood, although there is clearly a genetic basis to it. And the inflammation actually just starts to destroy the lining of the gut, both the small intestine, the large intestine. In fact, Crohn's disease can affect the entire GI system, um, whereas ulcerative colitis is really only in the, in the colon and the lower intestine. Now, these are, these are pretty serious and sometimes life-threatening diseases. About a third of people with IBDs are actually going to need um, restorative surgery at some point, sometimes life-saving surgery. Um, and these are, are conditions that need to be vigorously managed medically by a really competent expert gastroenterologist. Now, the, uh, the ways to rule those out, first, you want to ask yourself if you have any alarm symptoms. Not alarming, but mm-hmm. alarm symptoms. Those would include uh, low-grade chronic fever, um, blood in your stool, like not just a teeny tiny bit of blood on the on the toilet paper because maybe you had a hemorrhoid that right. bled a little bit, but like, like, like you, know, you hit a deer. and Like you hit a deer, bright red right. water in, mm-hmm. in the toilet. Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, not to be too graphic. Not to be too graphic, but like <laughs> I said, you, you got to talk about this stuff. So um, chronic nutritional deficiencies like B12 deficiency would be another clue. 
Um, and there are fortunately some non-invasive tests, some, some blood tests and stool tests. There's a stool test called the fecal calprotectin test, um, mm-hmm. which I really strongly recommend that people have done because there's, there's no prep involved. It's not like a colonoscopy. You don't have to, you know, take a day off from work. You just poop in a bucket and drop it off at the hospital and they'll, they'll analyze it. It's a pretty sensitive test for the inflammatory factors that we see in IBDs. Um, if that comes back raised at all, you know, elevated, then you really do need to undergo a colonoscopy because they, they need to get in there and take some samples and really see what's going on. Um, so there's a lot of different kinds of tests that they can do. They can even do capsule endoscopies. That's so cool. It's so like science fiction. It's you swallow crazy. a teeny tiny little camera. It's about the size of a vitamin pill. And then you wear a belt with a little receiver on it. And as that camera goes through your system, it takes hundreds and hundreds of pictures, digital photos, and with, a, it's, with its own little light and sends them to the receiver so they can get a perfect picture of your entire intestinal tract. I think that's so cool. And then yes. you, just, you just poop it out and you flush it away. You don't have to recover it or anything. Well, I'm constantly looking for cameras in my feces just because I think the government's watching me, but I, I would hope that you don't have to fish that out. That would be the worst part of it. Do you get your copay back if they did need a camera back? <laughs> no, fortunately, you just flush it away. Um, so it's really important to have those two sets of things ruled out because if you have either of those, it really needs to be managed medically in a very particular way. On the other hand, if you've mm-hmm. been worked up for those things and they're all negative and, you know, the physician has reassured you that you really don't have either of these kinds of conditions, then it's really not worth it to keep chasing a diagnosis. Lots of people will say, but I'm so sure that there's something horribly wrong with my gut. Maybe they just haven't figured it out yet. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that irritable bowel syndrome can cause symptoms that are excruciating, that feel disabling. Mm -hmm. Um, It really is a sufficient diagnosis to explain the discomfort and the disability that people are experiencing. So it's really just not worth chasing the diagnosis further. I agree with this. So if we were to start over and somebody has, because basically I asked uh, the, I always ask my crew here, like, what kinds of questions should I ask? And the first thing that they said is, why is my gut such a mess? Why am I bloated all the time? All of those kinds of things. And so people, and and this is just the thing is like so many people will tell you that they have some form of IBS or some sort of gut mm-hmm. disease. So what do, what steps do people go through from, I have a problem with my gut that's on a recurrent basis mm-hmm. to to knowing conclusively the IBS. So you had said that there are all these different diagnostics. When do you go to the doctor though after the first few symptoms? What do you try first on your own? And when do you go to the doctor? And then when do you go to the GI doctor, right? And then like what's that path that you would recommend? Because I don't think you're saying that people should ignore their gut stuff and just start meditating. No, No, you definitely need to be worked up by a competent physician to make sure that you don't have any of these other conditions. Mm -hmm. Now, by definition, IBS has to have been recurring pain, um, Mm -hmm. relieved by defecation at least once a week for at least three months. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the definition. That's really what we, you know, that that's the point at which we would say, okay, this is becoming a chronic condition that we really need to work up. Now, it's worth pointing out that lots and lots and lots of people, in fact, everyone really, when you think about it, experiences occasional GI discomfort or distress. 
Everybody yeah. experiences occasional diarrhea, occasional. I mean, we're all within like 10 miles of a Taco Bell. So, I mean, it's very. Exactly. Yeah, and very a lot common. of that really does depend on, on your diet. It depends on stress and sleep and exercise and, you know, a hundred different factors. So I don't want people freaking out over, you know, a couple of days of diarrhea or a couple of days of not pooping. That's not, that's not really a problem. It becomes a problem when pain is is really you know where it's no longer discomfort it's genuinely pain and when people are experiencing recurring issues over several months we had talked about the inflammatory bowel diseases and how they're different is there an inflammatory component to ibs and is ibs something that could lead to more serious gastrointestinal disorders like you were explaining so those are great questions too. So we're not absolutely sure whether there's a very, very low-grade inflammatory process in IBS, but there probably is. Um, oh, yeah. In, in addition, there's we haven't even talked about the microbiome yet. Oh, my gosh. There's, yeah. a whole, there's a whole world in there to talk about. So IBS is really a combination of a couple of different things. It is probably some very low-grade inflammation combined with what's called dysbiosis, which means disruption in the ecology of all of the symbiotic bacteria that normally live in our guts. Mm -hmm. Now, before your listeners go, ooh, oh my God, here's what you need to know. We need those bacteria. Yeah. We actually co-evolved with them. They help us digest our food. After our skin, they're the most important part of our immune system because they fight off bad invaders that we don't want. They keep bad bacteria that could make us sick in check. So having a healthy microbiome with lots and lots of different species in there, all helping to digest our food and fight off, you know, the, the, the bad bacteria we don't want, like E. coli and C. diff, mm -hmm. um, those are absolutely necessary. And there's a fair bit of evidence that the microbiome in people with IBS is probably disrupted, that, that there's too few of some species and too few of others, and that in, just in general, the variety of species in the gut has, has really declined in a lot of people with IBS. We had uh, Dr. Michael Danes at the University of Arizona. He's a pediatric immunologist, and we were talking about the microbiome a little bit. And he, he basically said we're bacterial cells uh, with a few human cells, too, uh, yep. because of the, the amount of them. Right, right exactly. So, right. Um, so let's get into the microbiome, because this is not only a, a big pop uh, culture awareness around probiotics and gut health, but, you know, science over the past 20 to 30 years has really come a long way in our understanding of the microbiome. So let's talk about good bacteria and bad bacteria in the gut. Mm -hmm. Sure. So one of the common explanations for IBS that a lot of gastroenterologists just reach for initially is something called SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Mm -hmm. um, this is kind of an old hypothesis of IBS. It's based on a sort of simple germ theory that germs are bad and make us sick. And if you have too many of them, we got to kill them. So the response to that, of course, is to prescribe people with antibiotics. And there's mm -hmm. a few that are sort of typically, typically used. Unfortunately, that approach really, really doesn't work very well because mm -hmm. it turns out that, well, for one thing, for example, the, uh, you, have to, you have to treat about 10 people to get one person who has even anything like a satisfactory response. So that's not a very good, good ratio. No. Um, and in addition, even people who respond to the antibiotic initially, they're typically going to need, need to be retreated every three to six months. And eventually the medication just stops working because, of course, the bacteria become resistant. So unfortunately, 
treating this problem as just a bad bacteria that needs to be killed really isn't very helpful to people. Mm-hmm. What's much more helpful, it turns out, is to eat a varied whole foods diet to include what the, the prebiotic foods, which are all the foods that these bacteria eat and munch on and, and, and like to live on, mm-hmm. and to eat lots of probiotic foods. So fermented foods, things like yogurt and kefir and miso and sauerkraut and so on and, and kombucha, all of which have live bacterial cultures in them that help to replenish our microbiome. I want to add a little point here, if I can, because we've talked about the idea of lacto-fermented foods in the diet before. And while it's super critical to do that, a lot of commercially available lacto-fermented foods are often devoid or have minuscule amounts of cultures left in them. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're going to be getting a mixed bag of strains. So it's Mm -hmm. not like you're getting very specific things. It's very healthy to eat these things. I'm not saying that it's not, but I'm saying it's not as consistent as some people need, uh, especially when you look for these um, store-bought alternatives. So I just kind of want to add that in there. Right. No, I agree. And the problem with probiotics too is that, as you know, they're not FDA regulated. So you never really know what you're getting. Um, which is why I prefer some of the some of the brands of probiotics that have actually been tested by independent laboratories. Mm-hmm. Laboratories are independent of the manufacturer mm-hmm. and have been found not only to contain what they say they contain, but to actually be helpful for people with IBS. Right. So uh, let's kind of stay here. I don't like to mention brands just because it changes so often. So if we go on record saying brand X is good and then they sell out to China or like Nestle, like Garden of Life just recently did, then right. they've and become the devil. You can't. Yeah. And then we're on record. I don't want that to happen. But just speaking generally about it, one of the things that I like to say about uh, any supplement, as you said, it's not FDA regulated. But more importantly, the the manufacturers themselves aren't doing what they're supposed to do uh, as part of the regulations to do the right thing. A lot of the times they're just cutting corners and they're just throwing products out there. So as consumers, we have to separate the ingredient, probiotics are healthy, from the products that we buy. And there are so many probiotic products out there that are just absolute garbage. Uh, And, you know, the supplement industry shows their true colors in the probiotic space. Not only do you have to make something, but then you without it being dirty and contaminated and everything like that. But then these things have to actually survive the gut acid, colonize the gut and and do all sorts of other things. They have to be alive. So you have a lot of uh, liabilities when it comes to making probiotic products. So it's very difficult to find good ones. Now, even if you have uh, kind of a a half done probiotic, you still may get some results because just introducing some of these strains will be beneficial for your gut, especially if you have uh, a microbiome gone wild, uh, Mm -hmm. of course. Uh, One of the things I also like to talk about when we talk about probiotics is the concept of strain-specific effects. Um, There are resources online, and what we'll do is we'll link them in the show notes on the website uh, where people can go and see the actual collection of the the research. So like the World Gastroenterology Organization has some great data that says these specific strains are the ones that have been beneficial in reducing symptoms of IBS. So, well, and I would go even further than that and say that you have to specify if people have diarrhea-predominant IBS or constipation-predominant IBS, because right. there's some data suggesting that different strains are helpful for those different kinds of problems. 
Right. So when it comes to choosing a probiotic and using a probiotic, I think Dr. Hunt and I are on the same page where uh, we need a probiotic to keep our microbiome healthy. But there is a lot of nuance in choosing a probiotic uh, and making sure that you're getting the thing that is most targeted for you. Um, Bifidus infantis being one of the biggest strains, right? A line was the brand uh, out there that had some data around it. But if you've ever looked at the third party testing done on that product, one, you know that that strain is temperature sensitive. It has to be refrigerated, but where is a line sold? Mostly on store shelves and it's not shipped in the cold chain. So when they've done third-party analysis, it actually has a lot less than what's labeled. And they get away with that by putting a little asterisk on a lot of probiotic products that says 2 billion CFU at the time of manufacture. So when we put this together, it had 2 billion CFU. It's kind of yeah. like saying there was 12 chocolate chips in each of these cookies before Neil got to them, you know? And then <laughs> right. now you have, you've got maybe right. one if you're lucky. He so because of all of this, you know, you said something really interesting a few minutes ago. We need probiotics. We don't really need probiotics. What we need is a healthy mix of bacteria in our gut. Mm -hmm. Now, back in the day, 200 years ago, maybe even 75 years ago, mm -hmm. certainly 10,000 years ago, nobody was taking probiotics and people had nice, healthy microbiomes. In fact, in the developing world um, and in the very, very few hunter-gatherer societies that still exist, it turns out people have beautifully healthy and diverse microbiomes. Now, why is that? There's two reasons. Number one, they eat a much more healthful, varied, whole foods, natural, non-processed diet. They're not constantly being exposed to pesticides and herbicides. And number two, they're not washing their hands all the damn time. Hmm. They're not using Purell at every turn. They're not carrying Purell around in their purse. They're not using antibacterial dish soaps and, and cutting boards that have been impregnated with triclosan, God help us. Mm -hmm. That is one of the worst things for public health that has ever happened, ironically. Mm -hmm. yep. It is the insistence that people constantly sanitize and wash and kill bacteria. We don't want to be doing that. Well, I certainly don't want to use anybody's cell phones because they take them in the bathroom with them. Uh, so I'm kind of a germ phobe and I like frequent hand washing, especially to prevent uh, diseases. But I understand. Well, hold on a second. Hold okay. on a second. Because Let's actually, because one of the things we also know is that the rates of autoimmune disorders have quintupled in the developed world over the mm -hmm. last 50 years or so. Allergies, asthma, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel diseases, celiac disease, all of these things, even multiple sclerosis, rates of these disorders have skyrocketed in the developed world in hand in hand with more and more and more sanitation and hand washing and so on. There's a lot of good evidence that one of the best ways to make sure that your immune system is healthy and robust and that your microbiome is nice and varied is to stop washing and sanitizing everything so much. Wow. I, I am not going to align. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to align on that one for sure. I think that like uh, one of the things I would definitely say that you hit on is like 
all of the chemical soup that we live in definitely is connected to a lot of these things. We just had uh, two wonderful women talking about autism misinformation and what's the cause. There isn't a single cause, but the environmental factors are a really big one that is influencing all of this. So I actually have a couple, a bunch more questions related to the mental health aspect before we turn yes. this into a probiotic podcast. Yes, please, let's that. <laughs> so the, we are I guess before we move ahead, basic gut health recommendations to try to remove the variables that could be contributing to the IBS outside of the stress factor. Um, so what do you tell people to do, uh, obviously besides not wash your hands all the time, uh, <laughs> to, to maintain a healthy gut not related to stress release. Sure. So let's talk about what people actually do and what gastroenterologists often recommend. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the single most common approach to managing IBS is restrictive diets. It's trying to identify the dangerous trigger foods that are out there. I mean, you go online and you start Googling IBS and you'll see all kinds of things about dangerous trigger foods that trigger attacks. And people will start systematically trying to eliminate, all, or not so systematically, they'll just start eliminating things. Now, if you followed all the advice out there, you'd literally end up with nothing on your plate but a pile of plain white rice, mm -hmm. um, which is not really a very sustainable, nutritious, or appealing diet. Mm -hmm. um, so the problem is that there's a huge amount of misinformation out there about dietary restriction. And unfortunately, it's what a lot of gastroenterologists recommend, and it's what a lot of folks with IBS try. If you go onto Amazon and you Google IBS in, under books, what you're going to get mostly is about 50 different diet books that promise to change your life and eliminate your symptoms by eliminating, you name it, carbs or this or that or the other thing. Yeah, whatever. Um, the one diet that actually has some serious empirical support is called the low FODMAP diet. Mm -hmm. And while I respect the people who developed the diet, yes. I have a lot of issues with it. FODMAP stands for fermentable, and then there's a whole mouthful, oligo and disaccharides and mono and polyols. Don't even worry about the rest of that. Sugar. Well, there are short-chain carbohydrates that occur right. naturally in a lot of different foods. But the, the one I want to focus on is that first letter, the F, fermentable. Let's think about what that means. Mm -hmm. i got to bring us back to the microbiome here for a second, because what fermentable means is that these are the foods that are digested by the bacteria in our microbiome. These are, in fact, all the prebiotic foods mm -hmm. that we should be eating. Now, when you eat prebiotic foods, they do indeed produce a little bit more gas and water as a, the secondary result of that fermentation process, but they do that equally for everyone. Only people with IBS are bothered by it because they have the visceral hypersensitivity. Mm -hmm. so what the low FODMAP diet tries to do is for six weeks, you eliminate all these foods, and it's a crazy restrictive diet. Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost impossible to maintain if you want to be a vegetarian because you have to eliminate all dairy and all legumes. Mm -hmm. So no protein sources. Yeah. And I mean, the <laughs> other thing that I always tell people about the FODMAP diet uh, is to not do it on your own. You really need to be working you with a dietitian. You cannot do it on your own. That's right. You have to work with a really experienced dietitian. And unfortunately, that's not usually what happens. Usually what happens is the gastroenterologist hands the person a one page handout with these are the foods you should avoid. Right. Uh, and that's it. And of course, it's also impossible to follow if you don't control all of your own food. So you can't do it if you're a college student or living in a dorm. Um, 
you know, and, and once you start following it, you can't ever eat out. You can't go to a friend's house. Right. It's incredibly life restricting in addition to being a dietary restriction. And interestingly, you're really not supposed to be on it long term. Even the people who, who developed the diet said this is absolutely not a long term diet because not surprisingly, it makes dysbiosis worse. Right. For example, all those lovely bifidus bacteria die because they're being starved to death. Right. So unfortunately, that's what people really turn to. What they're trying to do desperately, and I understand it, they're trying to get rid of their GI sensations and symptoms, okay? Because they're so hypersensitive to those sensations that it's really making them uncomfortable and it's really almost disabling for some people. So it's perfectly natural to say, well, look, if these, you know, if foods are triggering these symptoms, I, I just won't eat any of these foods. In fact, sometimes with people with IBS, just forego eating at all for large chunks of the day. That's not a great idea either, because then if you're hungry, you know, if I told you, hey, I've got a treatment for IBS that works really well, it's got some unfortunate side effects, though. You're going to be really dizzy. You're going to have a headache. You're going to feel kind of nauseous. You're going to be irritable. Your short-term memory is going to go. You're going to be kind of careless and a little clumsy, and you're not going to be very good at learning things while you're on this treatment. Mm -hmm. Would you want it? And most people would say, oh, hell no, that sounds terrible. But in fact, what I've just described is hunger. Mm -hmm. So for fasting is not a great solution either. So what we really want people to do, and here's where we come back around to the mental health component and what psychotherapy can do. Instead of trying to eliminate the sensations that you're hypersensitive to, why don't we eliminate the hypersensitivity instead? Okay. And then you can eat whatever you want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Obviously, that's going to be a better approach. And the good news is that we have some pretty straightforward ways to do that. All right. So let's talk about what kinds of things we can do um, uh, on our own and then with guided assistance to help reduce the stress that leads to the IBS-related symptoms. Right. So there's two pieces. There are several different kinds of therapies that are psychotherapies that are very, very strongly empirically supported. One of them is called gut-directed hypnotherapy. Mm. Um, and you have to work with someone who's been certified in that treatment, which there aren't a ton of people, but there are certainly some. And the other is cognitive behavioral therapy with a specific focus on gut health. And CBT is probably the single best researched intervention for IBS that has by far the most data and gets big effect sizes. And most importantly, really, really improves people's quality of life. So there's a technical thing, HRQL, health-related quality of life. And that's really what we're trying to improve. We're trying to decrease the distress and the disability that people are experiencing from this. So there's two pieces to it. One is that CBT is going to teach you some strategies for learning how to manage and reduce unnecessary stress in your life just generally, irrespective mm -hmm. of, of your GI functioning. So, you know, getting into a fight with your partner or getting a bad review at work or, you know, having a sort of ambiguous interaction with somebody at, you know, at a at a, at a get-together after work and then sort of ruminating about it and feeling terrible about it. CBT is going to teach people a whole bunch of strategies for thinking about things in a more benign and realistic way so they don't kind of fester and make you way more stressed out than you need to be. So notice, it's not about avoiding stress, which some GI doctors will tell IBS patients, well, you know, you really should just try to avoid stress. Yeah. That's terrible advice because that means you're just going to avoid life. Yes, you should avoid breathing at all costs because right. as you breathe, exactly. your gut gets worse. Right. It's terrible advice. So, 
So we're also going to teach people some basic relaxation strategies for turning down all that sympathetic nervous system arousal. My favorite is deep diaphragmatic breathing, Mm -hmm. which most people don't know how to do. Most people, when you tell them to take a deep breath, they actually take a fairly shallow thoracic breath rather than a true deep diaphragmatic breath. Mm -hmm. True deep diaphragmatic breathing really does slow down the heart, reduces blood pressure, suppresses adrenaline and cortisol. And my favorite, it optimizes intestinal motility. So really learning how to deep breathe properly can be super helpful. And you can actually breathe through cramping pain sometimes and it'll just make it go away, which is great. So then we're going to, so we're going to teach people relaxation. We're going to teach people how to manage stress more effectively. So they're not, you know, freaking out all the time about things that they don't necessarily need to be freaking out about. And then we're going to really bring it right back around to the IBS symptoms themselves. People with IBS do a lot of catastrophizing about their gut symptoms. So not only the pain itself, they start, oh, this is intolerable. I can't stand this. This is, you know, I can't function if I feel this way. A lot of judgment. A lot of judgment. They also start catastrophizing kind of the, the, the implications of having GI system symptoms in both social and work-related situations. So, you know, people start thinking, if I'm sitting in a meeting at work and I really feel like I have to fart or I feel like I have to belch. I say just let it go. Well, that's what I tell people too. show dominance (laughs) in the workplace really quickly. I've actually joked with people about bringing a whoopee cushion into their next staff meeting and just (laughs) letting it rip. Right. Um, Or people start really- (laughs) Or cough, pretend to- (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or people really worrying about, you know, what if- what if I have to run out of the meeting to go use the bathroom? What if I'm experiencing urgency? One of the things people worry about a lot is actual incontinence, actually losing it and pooping in their pants. Even people who have never experienced it have a tremendous fear of it and often start avoiding lots of situations. So people can actually meet criteria for agoraphobia just from fear of fecal incontinence. So they will stop going to any place or situation in which getting to a bathroom might be time consuming or difficult, or they might have to wait, or the bathrooms might be yucky. So people stop going to their kids' soccer tournaments because, you know, the porta potty could be a quarter of a mile away and it could have a line five people deep. People stop going to shopping malls. They stop going to movie theaters. They stop going to places of worship. They stop going to concert venues or sporting stadiums or church, you know, any place where you might feel like you're stuck and you can't sort of get to a bathroom. People might start avoiding going grocery shopping. Right. Because what if there's somebody else in the one available bathroom and they can't get there in time? Um, people will sometimes start avoiding intimacy with their partners because they're so worried that they're going to fart or they're going to be incontinent and leave a little smear of poop on the sheets. Again, even if it's never actually happened, people will get very, very scared about this. So Helping people refocus on decatastrophizing some of the actual implications of those GI symptoms themselves and doing exposure therapy just exactly like you recommended. You know, go into a meeting and let her rip. <laughs> um, <laughs> talk to people. Tell, tell people that you work with. You know, pick one trusted coworker at the beginning or, or one really close friend who you haven't told about your GI issues and just let them know. It, you don't have to go into all the gory details. Just let them know because people start thinking, oh my gosh, if people knew about this, um, they would just think I was disgusting. They would think I was pathetic. They wouldn't understand. They would make fun of me. And so, you know, that trip to the beach that your friends are doing where you're going to have to be in the car with three other people for, you know, an hour and a half while you get to the beach. Nope, can't do that. Going to have to beg off that because 
what if I have to ask them to pull over so I can go to the bathroom? And I will say, so what if you do? Right. Well, they're, you know, it's going to be so inconvenient. Everyone's going to be mad at me and they're going to think I'm really weird. And I'm like, you know what? You're just going to have to try it because really most people are way more kind and sympathetic and thoughtful than you're giving them credit for. And it's honestly just not that big a deal. Do you incorporate meditation and mindfulness into your practice at all? We do. Absolutely. And in fact, mindfulness-based interventions have certainly shown some promise in the treatment of IBS, as they have for many conditions that involve kind of chronic, exaggerated pain processing. Um, doing meditation, really getting people to first focus on the symptoms in their, in their gut in a kind of non-judgmental, curious way to reframe those symptoms as just sensations rather than as pain. And then also helping people learn how to shift their attention away from those symptoms to other things like the sounds, the ambient noises in the room around them, or the sensation of their breath in their nose, or, you know, the feeling of the soles of their feet pressing against the floor. Helping people learn to shift their attention away from those sensations or to focus on the sensations, but in a sort of non-judgmental, non-catastrophizing way. Really, if you think about it, there's a lot of overlap between kind of gut-directed hypnotherapy, which is very similar in some ways to what I just described, mindfulness-based interventions, and some of the more explicit CBT work where we do both with reframing the meaning and implications of the symptoms, and also with just doing experiments in the real world to go ahead and put yourself in situations where, you know, you might be uncomfortable and figure out that actually it's just not that big a deal. So Dana, the producer here is sitting next to me and she wants to know if you have any experience with fecal transplants and, uh, and that science and the microbiome. Yes, I do. In fact, now it's mm -hmm. not an approved treatment for irritable bowel syndrome just yet. It is absolutely a first line treatment for C. diff infections. Um, and it's showing some, some real promise in the inflammatory bowel diseases as well. There have been a few trials with IBS that have certainly shown some promise, but it's not quite ready for prime time yet. And it's very difficult to find a center that's willing to do it if your diagnosis is IBS and insurance won't pay for it. So I think we've, we've covered a lot. So we talked about lots of myths and misinformation around gut health and IBS and other inflammatory gut diseases. We've talked about some good habits that everybody should be in. And uh, we've really kind of nailed down the idea that your mind and your gut are so deeply connected and, and psychotherapy interventions shouldn't be avoided. In fact, should be a mainstay of therapy here. Is there anything like that you could say to summarize the whole thing or something that we didn't cover that you want us to talk about? I guess what I would say is the biggest challenge to doing the psychotherapy is finding first a person who's a really good cognitive behavioral therapist. Most therapists who are out there are not trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. You really want someone who knows what they're doing um, because a kind of general talk therapy where the person may be very warm and kind and sympathetic and, you know, have sort of good common sense advice, but really isn't trained in CBT is not going to be helpful, particularly to IBS. So that's that you really want someone who's 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 well trained in, in cognitive behavioral therapy. And if they happen to have specific um, what's called psychogastroenterology experience, if they actually know something about the gut, that's going to be even more helpful. Now, the good news is that there's actually a couple of self-help books out there that outline the whole kind of CBT approach to IBS in a very, very user-friendly way. They were written specifically for consumers. 
Um, one of them is by a colleague of mine named Jeff Lackner. It's called Controlling IBS, The Drug-Free Way. It's a good book. Um, I certainly, you know, recommend it to people. There's another book out there, which I'll be honest, I wrote. Yay. Um, it's called Reclaim Your Life from IBS. Um, and it's really unusual in that I actually tested the book as a standalone treatment in a randomized controlled trial before I published it. In fact, they I didn't waited. have to eat the book to reduce them. I didn't have to. That's right. Okay. I just want to make sure. Okay. Yes. People mm -hmm. had to read the book. I gave them six weeks to read it and we compared it to people who were just sort of on a wait list, you know, just doing treatment as usual, whatever they were, they were trying to do to manage their symptoms for those same six weeks. And then we followed people for three months after that. And what we found was that people who completed the treatment, people who read the book and actually did the exercises in the book got a lot better. Mm -hmm. Um, depression and anxiety went way down, health-related quality of life went way up, catastrophizing and visceral hypersensitivity diminished dramatically, and people's symptoms actually got better. Right. And I am all for everybody getting this book. Part of the reason that I have Dr. Hunt on the podcast uh, twice now is because she's a no BS person like us. She's not using hokey uh, approaches or techniques. And I think the information that she has here uh, presented and also in her book are, are super valuable to anybody struggling with IBS. Um, so I definitely want to thank you again for coming on the podcast and talking about pooping uh, so uh, unashamedly. And uh, <laughs> I think it needs to happen on a much more uh, regular basis. And I'm guaranteeing that we'll be talking again in the future about more gut health related issues. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Another great informative appearance from Dr. Hunt. I encourage all of you to reevaluate the role of stress and your mental health in its connection to our digestive system. I also encourage you all, of course, to frequently wash your hands despite what the good doctor says. One of the things I know from my years at practice is that gut health is the issue. It's universal. It affects people of all shapes, sizes, and ages. It beats out things like sleep, stress, and anxiety by far. In fact, the only thing bigger than it right now is CBD. So many of us suffer from GI discomfort or some real clinical issue, and we want a quick fix and a clear diagnosis. The natural products industry is quick to fill your head with all sorts of ideas about what's causing the problem and how their special protocol or regimen will fix it. But the truth is, is that sometimes it's not that complicated and it's not that sexy. There are just a few moving parts, a few levers to switch to address your gut issues. And, you know, they hide behind the smoke and mirrors. Their protocols have the basic unsexy gut advice hidden in them. And if you do those things, you'll feel better no matter what. So I think if you want to read more, look at Dr. Hunt's book. It's on Amazon. It's called Reclaim Your Life from IBS. It's a great guide and it's very comprehensive. And again, if you want to reach out to Dr. Hunt, please do so. Go to melissahunt.net, M-E-L-I-S-S-A-H-U-N-T.net or by email at mhunt at upenn.edu. And upenn is U-P-E-N-N.edu. So that's it for now. Until we speak again, keep listening, keep learning, and be well.